Tonight we're going to study Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 29. For just a minute review, let's look at what we've had so far. You recall that the first great section of Paul's epistle is Romans chapter 1, verse 7, 18, to Romans chapter 8, verse 39. Now that section, Romans 1, 18, to 8.39 is divided into two major sections. We could well call it man's ruin, God's remedy. Man's universal condemnation, Romans 1.18 to 3.20, and God's perfect remedy in Jesus Christ, Romans 3.21 to 8.39. Now in this first section, man's ruin, Romans chapter 1.18 to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul does three things. First of all, he brings on trial the Gentile, the man who has only natural revelation. That's found in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to verse 32, Romans 1, 18 to 32. The guilt of the Gentile. Now that's on your outline, is it not? On the introduction. The guilt of the Gentile, Romans 1, 18 to 32. He was the man who had natural revelation. Then secondly, in Romans chapter 2, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 8, Paul uh, explains, states, and explains the guilt of the Jew, the man who had supernatural revelation. Then in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, Paul sums up the case and concludes by saying uh, that um, we know that whatsoever things the law says, it speaks to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world stand, all the world stand guilty before God, both Gentile and Jew. Now, we've already taken up the Gentile. We started last Monday night on the Jew. Romans 2, 1 to chapter 3, verse 8. Now, that's divided into four sections. Romans chapter 2, 1 to 3, 8. Four sections. First of all, Paul states in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, God's principles of judgment. He doesn't name the man that he's after until he gets down to Romans chapter 2, verse 17. Why? Why? Well, he's going to let the man hang himself. The parallel is the way Nathan handled David's case. After, Nathan committed, uh, after David committed adultery, and sent Bathsheba's husband out to the front lines and had him murdered, David went on in his sin for four, five, six months. One day, Nathan came to David. Nathan said to David, You know, I want to tell you about something. There was a rich man and a poor man lived next door to one another. rich man had many, many lambs. The poor man had but one little ewe lamb. visitor came to the rich man's home. He wanted to prepare a meal for him. But instead of going out and taking one little lamb from his hundreds or thousands of lambs, he went next door by sheer power. Might makes right. By sheer power. And took that poor man's one little ewe lamb and left the man with suffering. While Nathan was telling the story, David's blood was heating up. David was getting hot under the collar. And he was also doing something else. He was tightening the noose on his own neck. And he said, said Nathan, what ought we to do? And David said immediately, this man ought to be punished fourfold. Nathan said, thou art the man. David knew exactly what he was talking about. David knew that Nathan, by God's revelation, knew what David had done, adultery and murder. And David fell on his knees and asked Nathan to pray to God for him. Now that's what Paul's doing here. He states the principles of God's judgment. What are they? Whoever sins incurs the just judgment of God. Whoever, that's the emphasis, whoever, whoever sins incurs the just judgment of God. Then he goes down to state, that the judgment of God is according, first of all, uh, second to deeds. First of all, in Romans chapter 2, verse 2, the judgment of God is according to truth, the real state of the fact. Secondly, verse 
6, the judgment of God is according to deeds. And verses 11 through 16, the judgment of God is according to the life that a man has. Now, with that, the Jews would agree. So Paul has no argument yet with the Jews. Now, point number two, the guilt and condemnation of the Jews. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 24. Now let's read this. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 24. Uh, before we read it, let me state one other thing. And it's this. It runs all through the four Gospels. It runs through Paul's writings. And, of course, Jesus was a Jew, and the man that wrote this was a Jew. The Jew depended on his religion, per se, to make him right with God. That runs through all the New Testament. Just as there are a lot of church members in Memphis today who depend upon their church membership and their baptism to make them right with God. So the Jew depended on his religion, per se, to make him right with God. The principal grounds of the Jew's confidence in his religion were first the covenant relationship which he enjoyed with God, second, his superior privileges, he had the Old Testament, and third, the right of circumcision. Now, all these were true. They were privileges. They were God-given privileges. God had given them to the Jews. They were superior privileges. God gave to the Jews, not to your ancestors or to mine, unless you were Jewish. Not to your ancestors or mine, but to the Jews. God gave these great privileges. Covenant relationships, monotheism, the Old Testament oracles, and the right of circumcision. God gave that to the Jews. They were superior privileges. Now, the mistake of the Jews, just as it's the mistake of the church member often of professing Christians in Memphis, the mistake of the Jew was this. He thought that the possession of privileges and the observance of rights automatically made a person right with God. Let me say that again. He thought that the possession of privileges and the observance of rights, circumcision, automatically made a man right with God. Now, that's true today whether it's the Roman Catholic and the Seventh Sacrament, whether it's the Protestant and the rite of baptism, whether it's an evangelical or a fundamentalist with church membership. People tend to believe, and I've had them come through these classes by the score, and there are people in this audience tonight who have told me that through the ministry of these classes, they have come to recognize that church membership and baptism would not save, cannot save. And they've been saved through the ministry of these classes. I know that. And that's a constant danger. It was a danger with the Jew, and it's a danger today with the professing Christian. Now, Paul's logic is this. You had advantages. You abused those advantages. Therefore, you will be judged since God's going to judge according to truth and according to deeds and according to the light that a man enjoys. Now, having said that, let's read Romans chapter 2, verses 17. But if, the King James says, behold, it ought to be, but if, but if, that's what's called in Greek a plodicus. And the ending of it begins at verse 20. But if, verse 17, but if thou art named a Jew, and restless in the law, makest thy boast of God, knowest his will, and, and approvest the things that are more excellent, since you are instructed out of the law, and those are all true, and since thou art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes who ask the form of knowledge and the truth of the law. Now, here comes the... the the apodosis, the then, then, but if, verse 17, if, but if thou art called a Jew, verse 20, then, 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 therefore, thou who teachest another, 
Do you practice what you preach? Thou that preachest that a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idolatry, dost thou rob temples? Thou that makest thy boast lost, dost thou through the breaking the law dishonorest God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, even as it is written. Now there's Paul's indictment of the Jews. Now on beginning with verse 25, and going on through chapter 3, verse 8, uh, chapter 3, verse 8, Paul, Paul destroys a false refuge of the Jews, 25 to 29. That's circumcision. Then in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, Paul answers certain objections to his argument. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. But the heart of this is verses 17 to 24. Now, let's look at this. Tremendously important section. The failure and the guilt of the Jews. Romans chapter 2, 17 to 24. Now, you want to keep in mind, you want to keep in mind while <clears throat> we are saying this, that this is an indictment which a Jew himself, the Apostle Paul, brought against the Jews. This is not an indictment which I, as a Gentile, and bring it against the Jews. This is an indictment which Paul himself, a converted Jew, is bringing against his own kinsmen according to the flesh. There is no anti-Semitism in this chapter. Paul had gone through the same experience, Philippians chapter, <coughs> Philippians chapter 3. So when Paul was speaking of the failure and guilt of the Jews, and when he identifies their mistakes, Paul knew him well because he made the same mistake prior to his conversion. Paul uses the same modus operandi that he did to the Gentiles. I don't want to take the time to put it on the overhead projector. But you see with the Gentiles, Romans 1, 18 to 32, <coughs> Paul states major premise or point one, <coughs> you had life, L-I-G-H-T. Point two, you did not live up to that life. Point three, therefore, you're guilty and under the wrath of God. Now he comes to the Jews and he follows that same modus operandi. You had privileges. You abused those privileges. Therefore, Romans 3.19, we know that whatsoever things the law says, it speaks to them who are under the law, the Jews, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world stands guilty before God. So here's the failure and the guilt of the Jews. Now, Paul, as the outline has it, Paul's going to do two things here. First of all, in verses 70 to 20, he's going to tell us of the advantages of the Jews. And then in verses 21 to 24, he's going to tell us of the guilt of the Jews. Verses 17 to 20, the advantages of the Jews. The Jew had both the light of nature and the light of supernatural revelation. So here in verses 17 to 20, the advantages of the Jews. And there are two kinds of advantages. First, their superior privileges, verses 17 and 18. And then there's secondly, their superior abilities. Two things under the advantages of the Jews. First, superior privileges, five of them. And then because of those privileges, superior capacity. Ability. All right, let's look at the, at, at the five superior privileges which the Jew enjoyed. And when we're looking at these, I want us to remember that what Paul is saying here was true. These were privileges which the Jew enjoyed. All right, there are five of them, 17 and 18. Number one, but if thou art called or named a Jew. First, he had a superior name. Superior name. Thou art called a Jew. Jew was the descendant of Judah. And the word Judah means the praised one. The praised one. And, and the term Jew uh, carried with it the idea of covenant relationship. He was a member of the theocracy of Israel. 
he was related to the royal line, the line of the Messiah. So thou art called the Jews. That was a great thing. Just as Paul, uh, just as a man could say, I am a Roman citizen, the Jew could say, I am a Jew. That was a great name, a coveted name. Thou art called a Jew. That was a privilege. You see, the, my ancestors didn't have the Old Testament. My ancestors did not have the truth of monotheism. My ancestors were not given the covenant, promised covenant um, promises that will be fulfilled in the millennium. Those were given to Israel and to the Jews, not to my ancestors or to yours. Thou art called a Jew. That was a privilege, a superior name. Secondly, a superior heritage. Verse 17, thou restest in the law. That is, the Jew possessed the law. He possessed the whole Mosaic economy, including the Ten Commandments and the ritual of the law and the priesthood and the civil laws. And the law was an infallible guide of conduct. That was a tremendous privilege. Third, a superior relationship. Verse 17, thou makest thy boast of God. Now, there, the, the Bible uses the word boast in a right sense and in a wrong sense. The Bible speaks of us boasting in God. That's a good sense. We glory in God. But there's a wrong sense when we boast of a thing as a special monopoly, which no one else has. Now, although the Jew boasted in the second sense, that is, no other nations had, had the revelation of the true God, yet he did possess the knowledge of the true God. What did Jesus say to that Samaritan woman? I don't know whether I'm coming across you or not. What did Jesus say to this Samaritan woman? Uh, she said, uh, is it right for us to worship up here at Mount Gerizim or down there? The Jews worship down there. We worship up here. What did Jesus say? Thou knowest not what thou worshipest. No Gentiles did. Gentiles did not have the revelation of God. Salvation, said Jesus, is of the Jews. John chapter 4, 22 and 23. Yes, the Jews had a special relationship to God. Then number four, he had superior knowledge. Verse 18, and thou knowest his will, because he had the Old Testament scriptures, and he knew God's will, whereas the heathen were ignorant. The only scripture they had was the law of God written on their conscience. And you can sear a conscience, but you can't sear the word of God. The pagan then, and the pagan in India, has the law of God written on his conscience, but you can sear a conscience, but you can't sear the word of God. And the Jew not only had the revelation of God in his conscience, but in an indestructible Old Testament. So he had superior knowledge. And then number five, he had superior discernment. And to prove us the things that are more excellent. That is, the Jew had superior moral judgment because he was instructed out of the law and in the synagogue. Five great privileges of the Jews. A superior name, a superior heritage, a superior relationship, a superior knowledge, and superior discernment. Did the Jew have privileges? Absolutely. No man can deny that. Uh, the Old Testament makes that clear. Jesus said that again and again. And the New Testament affirms it. Now, we're not going to take the time to do so, but you ought to read Deuteronomy chapter 7. Not now, please. Don't turn there now. But Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, 7, and 8. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, 6, 7, 8, Paul, uh, Moses said uh, that God chose Israel out of all the nations of the earth. God chose Israel. Why? Why? Not because you were better. Out of God's own sovereign grace, 
Out of all the nations of the world, by his own sovereign grace, God chose the nation of Israel, gave to Israel the Old Testament scriptures, gave them the truth of monotheism, gave them those great covenants which will be fulfilled in the millennium, gave them the promise of the Messiah. Did, a, did the Jew have a privileged position? Indeed, he did. And neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament challenges that statement and this statement found to Paul. Now, because of those superior privileges, the Jew also claimed superior ability. That's verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20. Now, because you have those privileges, because you have those privileges, verse 19, thou art confident that thou thyself art, number one, a guide of the blind, Number two, a light of them who are in darkness. Number three, an instructor of the foolish. Number four, a teacher of babes who has the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Here were the, because of these privileges, the Jew here claimed and had special ability. God gave to the Jew these privileges, and he gave these, uh, to the Jew these privileges so that they would have these abilities. What were those abilities? Well, they're four, but very quickly. Thou art confident. Thou art, number one, guide of the blind. Who would the blind be here? Gentiles. You're a guide of the blind. Was that true? Yes. Yes. In the providence of God, God gave to Israel the Old Testament so they could be a guide of the blind and disseminate the scriptures. They didn't do it, just like the church today doesn't carry the gospel to the far ends of the earth. But that was their responsibility. You have a privileged position here in Memphis over the man that lives in the heart of China or the heart of Africa or the heart of South America. Absolutely. You got the Bible, you turn on the radio, listen to the gospel, go to church and hear the gospel, you have a privileged position. But that privileged position is given to you so that you can be also a guide of the blind. See? So that you have these privileges. Because of these, he claimed and, in a sense, properly, number one, be a guide of the blind. Number two, a light of them who are in darkness. Who is in darkness? The Gentiles. Number three, an instructor of the foolish. Who would the foolish be? The Gentiles. And number four, a teacher of faith. And that might be a reference to Gentile proselytes coming toward Judaism, the teacher of the babe. Now, all these were true. Those abilities should have given them that, those privileges should have given them that ability. And the basis of their confidence is in the end of verse 20. You're all these four things because you have the form, the scheme of knowledge, and of the truth in the law. Now, all Paul said so far is absolutely true, would be, of course. And the Jew would agree absolutely with Paul has said. Now, now comes the sledgehammer. Now comes, thou art the man, see? Paul has got them coming. He's got them listening to him carefully. There are no planes flying overhead when Paul's writing to disconcert him, see? They're all listening. He's got their attention. They're all agreeing with Paul. All of this is true, see? Now comes the sledgehammer. Now comes, thou art the man, verses 21 to 24. First of all, he raised the general question. Thou, therefore, here's the guilt of the Jew. The second thing in this section. Thou, therefore, who teachest another, teachest thou not thyself. That's a general question. The key to this is found in chapter 2, verse 13. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 13, For not the hearers of the Lord just before God, but the what? I 
Now, you see, that's the thing that Paul's going to expand on in these next three, four verses. The hearers of the law are not justified, but the doers of the law. Of course, nobody can do the law. But what he means in this case, and what he's talking about, is a man who does the law in the sense that he admits that he can't keep the law and trusts in God to save him. Hey, or the man who uses what God gives to us. And what Paul was saying is that the man who simply has the law and hears it, but does not do anything with it, is no better off than the man who doesn't have the law at all. Matter of fact, he's worse off. The man in Memphis who has the Bible and hears the gospel is going to be far worse off in hell than the man in India who only has the light of conscience. So Paul was asking the question, we would say, do you practice what you preach? Thou that teachest, you claim to be a guide, you claim to be a light, you claim to be an instructor, you claim to be a teacher of babes? Now I want to ask you a question, says Paul. Thou that teachest another, do you teach yourself those same truths? We would say, do you practice what you preach? You glory in the law. Let me ask you, said Paul, do you obey it? You boast in God. Let me ask you, said Paul, do you honor it? Now he draws four specific charges. After raising that general question, he makes four specific charges. Let's look at them. Verse 21, the first charge is the charge of what? Stealing. Number one, stealing. Number two, in the first part of verse 22, committing adultery. Number three, at the end of verse 22, robbing temples. Robbing temples. And the fourth charge, Breaking the law, breaking the law, or dishonoring God by breaking the law. All right, let's look at these four charges. And you see, Paul could state these because uh, because uh, uh, these were commonly known. You pick up, we can't do it. I have quotations, but I don't have time to quote them. But we have Roman writers like Juvenal, Roman writers of the same period, Roman writers of the same period that raised the same charges against the Jews that Paul raises against the Jews. These sins were common, and they were well known, and they were criticized by pagans. Now, do you mean to say that the pagans didn't do the same thing? No, obviously the pagans did. Did the pagans steal? Uh, yes. Did that Roman who lived in Rome steal? Yes. Did that Roman who lived in Rome was he guilty of adultery? Absolutely. The pagans were guilty of the same sins which Paul charges the Jews with. But that's not the point. The paganism was right with these sins. But that's not the point. The pagans expected more of the teacher. The pagans expected more of the Jews who had the law and condemned them for these sins. The pagans, in Paul's day, especially despised the Jews. There was a, a, a strong tide of anti-Semitism in the Greco-Roman civilization of that day. And the, uh, and the pagans especially despised the Jews in the days of Paul and Jesus, and despised them especially for two things. The pagans, and this comes out in the writing and the, the literature of the Romans of that day, they despised them, first of all, because the government of Rome gave to the Jews certain privileges which they didn't give to other provincials, you know, other people that lived out in the boondocks, in what we call Turkey, or down in North Egypt, or out in Syria. They weren't granted these privileges, but they granted them to the Jews. What were those? Well, one was uh, the right to take a deduction for a temple tax. The Jews in Athens and in Corinth and in Rome sent part of their money down to Jerusalem to pay the temple tax. And often it was a large amount. And the Romans 
gave them exemption for that. I hope you don't think that taxing is something new to the 20th century. You know, it's not. You know why Joseph went down to Bethlehem with Mary to be taxed, not to be taxed, but to be enrolled for taxing. Every, every Jew had to go back to his home city. Bethlehem was Joseph's home city. And he had to go back to his home city and list his occupation and his the level of his salary and the number of his dependents. Does that sound familiar? See? And on the basis of that, he was taxed. Something new to the 20th century. And um, the Jews are granted exemption because of the temple tax. Not exemption from all taxes, but they were granted certain exemptions. And the Romans didn't like that. They didn't like it because uh, um, they were allowed to try certain cases in their religious courts rather than in the civil courts. And the pagans didn't like that. They had to take their cases to civil courts. But the Jews could try men for crimes except the capital offense, and that's why they had to go to Pilate with Jesus. But the Jews could try men for crimes in the religious courts, the Sanhedrin and not have to go to the civil court. And the pagans despised the Jewish economy for that, the Jewish government for that. And then the third thing is that the Roman government gave certain other types of exemptions that had to deal with the Sabbath. For one thing, Jews, Orthodox Jews, were exempted from military service. They drafted Turks, or what we would call Turks, they drafted the Scythians, they drafted the men who lived in Syria. They drafted the Greeks, but they didn't draft the Jews. Why? Because the Jews wouldn't march on the Sabbath day. They would die. They would give up their life before they had marched on the Sabbath day. And the Romans learned this. Matter of fact, in the days of the Maccabeans, back 170 B.C., the Syrians learned to invade and attack cities on the Sabbath because the Jews would not defend their cities on the Sabbath until Judas Maccabeus said, we are going to fight on the Sabbath day. Once they made that decision, then they drove the Syrians out of the land, and they drove Antiochus Epiphanes out, and they were able to reestablish the temple during the Maccabean days. But they granted them what was called ostracea, from which we get the word strategy. Ostratea, exemption from military service. And they, they, they didn't like it. The pagans didn't like it. But there were two qualities that the pagans, for which the pagans especially despised the Jews. One quality was, was this, strangely enough. They accused the Jews, as they did the early Christians, they accused the Jews of being atheists because they didn't worship a visible God. They accused the Christians in the first three, four centuries of the same thing. You know, it was inconceivable to a Roman that you didn't worship a god that you couldn't see. The Romans and the Greeks and all the other people had visible gods. They had idols, but not the Jews. And later on, neither the Christians. And because the Jew had no visible god and worshipped no visible god, they accused him of atheism. The second quality, and that wasn't, you know, that was a, a good thing for which they criticized him. They ought not to. But the second thing they criticized him for, they, and this comes out again and again in the writings of, of, of the Roman writers um, that were contemporary of Paul and Jesus, and that is that they accused the Jews of general hatred of mankind. When we come to the four Gospels, what is the term that's used of Gentile? Dogs. Dogs. You remember that Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus and asked her to heal her son? And Jesus said, no, I've come only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He was doing that to test her faith. And she came to with flying colors. She said, oh, yes, Master, I know that. But even the dogs, even the dogs, eat the crumbs 
that fall from the children's table. In our home, the dog gets some of the better beefsteak. <laughs> our kids feed them the better beefsteak while I'm not looking. But normally, you know, the crumbs fall off the table. And she said, and even the dogs get to eat these crumbs. What she was saying is, I'm a Syrophoenician, a Gentile. And the eyes of you Jews, I am a dog. But even the dogs can eat the crumbs. Know what Jesus said? Now, he didn't agree with that. He didn't agree with that she was a dog. He was testing her faith. Jesus said, I haven't seen such great faith. No, not in Israel. See? But they were considered dogs. What did Paul write in Philippians chapter 3? Beware of the dogs. What Paul did there was take that word dogs, which the Jews used of Gentiles, and he took it and turned it around, and he used it of Jewish legalists. He called them dogs. <laughs> now, I'd get in trouble if I called anybody a dog out in the audience. But John the Baptist called them vipers, snakes. <laughs> and, and Paul called them dogs. Beware of the dogs, the Jewish legalists. But it was well known. What did that woman say? Uh, John chapter 4. How is it that you speak to me? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And in Roman literature, this comes out, that the pagans despise the Jews. They despise them for several reasons. But one of them was they, some good, some not good. One of them was this general antipathy toward mankind. And the antipathy was based on the fact that they forgot the proposition that God gave them what he gave them, not simply to hold it, but to give it to others. The same mistake is being made by the 20th century church. So Paul raises this indictment. Let's look at it. He accuses them of four things. Number one, he accuses them of stealing. Verse 21, thou therefore who teachest another, teachest not thou thyself. Now the indictment. Number one, thou that preachest a man should not steal. And they did. Don't steal. One of the Ten Commandments. Thou that preachest to the Gentiles, don't steal. Do you? Do you steal? Do you steal? The Jews preached against stealing, obviously. They quoted the commandments. And yet they were guilty of greed and insatiableness, especially in commerce. That was well known. Came out, comes out the writing of the Roman literary giant. Second thing. Adultery, adultery. Verse 22, thou Jew, thou Jew, that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? The Jews vigorously condemned adultery. And of course the pagans were grossly guilty of adultery. But the Jews vigorously condemned adultery. You remember one occasion when they condemned it? What did they want to do with that woman in John 8? Stone her. Stone her. Put her to death. They condemned vigorously adultery. And yet, some of their most prominent leaders were guilty of adultery. Abraham was guilty of adultery. David was guilty of adultery. Some of the leading rabbis of the first century were guilty of adultery. Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Eleazar, some of the leading rabbis were guilty of adultery. Matter of fact, Jesus addressed himself to this in Matthew chapter 5. He, so what Paul was saying is, thou that, you know, are you practicing what you're preaching? That's the point. He wasn't saying that the Gentiles don't commit it. I wasn't saying that. What he was saying is, while you are telling these Gentiles, don't commit adultery, you're practicing it yourself. And if you say the Gentile is guilty and under the wrath of God for committing adultery, then you also are under the wrath of God for committing adultery. Then the third thing which he brings up is robbing temples. Verse 20, 22. Thou that abhorrest 
idols dost thou, the King James says, commit sacrilege. The better translation would be rob temples. Well, they brought that accusation up against Paul in Acts chapter 19. So it must have been a prevalent thing, robbing temples. And then the fourth, the fourth indictment he brings up is in verse 23. Thou that makest thy boast of the law, to breaking the law, dost thou dishonor God? And of course the answer is to that, yes. The Jew boasted of the law. He boasted in the Ten Commandments. Yet he broke the law by his own sin. You remember how Jesus said this on one occasion? One of the commands of the Bible, a general thing that runs through the Old Testament, is that children ought to take care of their aged parents. Children ought to take care of the aged parents. Now the Jews, the Jews, by and far, were far more careful and scrupulous about taking care of their own. The Jews took care of their needy, of the widows and the orphans. They were known for that. They, the days of Paul and Jesus, they, uh, in the city of Jerusalem, they would send out men every day to take collection for the needy and the orphans and the widows. That's behind Acts chapter 6. And <clears throat> they took care, instructed out of the Old Testament, they took care of their aged parents as they do in Oriental lands much better than we do in Christian America. They took care of their aged parents. But remember that Jesus said to the leaders, remember what he said? He said, uh, you have something that you ought to give to your parents to help them. But you say, oh, no. I'm going to take that gift, and instead of giving it to my parents, I'm going to give it to God. That'll be more pious and religious. And so you give it to the temple, but with the understanding that you can borrow it back and use it for a time, and then pay it later on. And you remember Jesus scathingly denounced that. Matthew chapter 15. That's what he, Paul meant by law-breaking. You preach the men the Ten Commandments, and yet you break the law, and you're guilty of the same thing. And the consequences of your conduct, verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, even as it's written. The scandal of Jewish inconsistency caused Gentile pagans to blaspheme God's name, and that comes out in the current literature of the Greek and the Romans in the days of Jesus and Paul. What does the Old Testament say? What does the old saying go? Like father, like son. Like father, like son. Like God, like Jew. Like God, like Christian. That means that the average man is going to form his conception of God by what he sees in you and me. Just as the average man in that day, and that's what Paul is driving, the average man in that day formed, the average pagan in that day formed his conception of God by what he saw in the Jews. And what he saw was a misrepresentation. What does the average pagan today, whether in Memphis or in India, what is his conception of God? What he sees in Christians. And just as a boy forms his conception of God from his father, and that's why some boys grow up to believe that God is a tyrant because their daddy was a tyrant. So pagans form their conception of God by what they see in us. And Paul said, the name of God is blasphemed among pagans because of your conduct as a religious man. And of course, the same thing could be true, could be said also of Christian America in many places today. J. Stuart Holden, the great 
British preacher once asked a street preacher, a man that uh, used to preach in Hyde Park. Hyde Park is kind of like Pershing Square. I come from Los Angeles, and <clears throat> you go, used to go down to Pershing Square, and I'm, I'm sure still the same today, you could find everything, you know, all the, all the cooks and all the crooks are out on Pershing Square. You wait long enough, whatever is going on in all the rest of America will come into Pershing Square, right in the heart of Los Angeles. Well, Hyde Park, London, same way. And, uh, and uh, there have been, just as there are in Pershing Square, the old students, when they used to be at Biola, at the Church of the Open Door, Dr. McGee was, and Dr. Talbot, used to go down to Pershing Square, because it's only about two blocks from the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. They go down there and hold street meetings. They go down Pershing Square and preach. Hard place to preach. So was Hyde Park. Well, there was a great, well-known preacher that would go down to Hyde Park and preach the gospel in Hyde Park. One day, J. Stuart Holden, the great British preacher, asked this street preacher this question. What is the greatest hindrance to preaching the gospel in Hyde Park? See, the man, man's audience is composed of agnostics, and infidels, well-instructed infidels, not simply bugs in Hyde Park, but well-instructed Ph.D. infidels and agnostics, rank unbelievers. And J. Stuart Holden is asked him, what is the greatest hindrance you face in preaching the gospel? And the man replies, the lies of Christians. The lies of Christians. The reason, said J. Stuart Holden, the reason, and I've never forgotten this, I read this 25, 30 years ago, the reason the world knows God so little is that it knows us too well. And I say that again, the reason the world knows God so little is that it knows us too well. Or the old poet had it, you're writing a gospel a chapter each day by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithless or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? Now let's look quickly at Romans chapter 2, 25 to 29. 25 to 29, very quickly. The failure of circumcision as a refuge. Romans chapter 2, 25 to 29. Paul anticipates an immediate objection. Paul anticipates that the Jew is going to say, what you say is right, but I've been baptized, or rather, I've been circumcised. Since I'm circumcised, then I'm all right. Now, God gave to the Jew the right of circumcision as a sign and a seal. God gave that to the Jew, gave it to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. Abraham was justified, Genesis 15. Then God gave to him the right of circumcision in Genesis 17. Circumcision has always been the religious right of the Jew. Matter of fact, in Hitler's Germany, when they were unsure whether a man was a Jew or not, they inspected him. If he were circumcised, then they believed that he was. Circumcision has always been the sign of uh, the theocratic relationship of Israel to God. And God gave Israel circumcision. It was a visible sign to himself that he was in covenant relationship with God and enjoyed the blessings of God. Just as a woman or a man can wear a marriage ring and that marriage ring is a symbol, a visible symbol, to any who want to look, that she belongs to her husband, and he belongs to her. So the right of circumcision was a visible sign to the Jew that he belonged to God. And God gave that right, the right of circumcision, to Abraham and to the nation of Israel. And you remember one time when Moses was ready to go up and, and, and lead the 
people of Israel out of Egypt. Do you remember that God stopped Moses and appeared as though he were going to kill him, kill him, called him to lead the people out, and then appeared as though he were going to kill him. Why? Because he had not circumcised his two sons born of Zipporah. So he circumcised the two boys, and then he was allowed to go on. God gave to the Jews the right of circumcision. It's a God-given right. Baptism is not the complement to circumcision. But just as baptism is a God-given ordinance, so circumcision was a God-given ordinance to the Jew. And the Jew pleaded, therefore, we have the covenant signed. We are right with God, therefore. We are circumcised, and therefore we're right with God. And the rabbinical writings of that day uh, state, and uh, I had the time I could document it by quoting it, the rabbi said, if a man is circumcised, if a man is circumcised, then he has a place in the kingdom to come. If a man is circumcised, whatever may be his conduct, if a man is circumcised, then he has a place in the kingdom to come. His future is guaranteed. So Paul now declares that circumcision is a prophet when there's reality, but it's of no prophet when there's no reality. Now let's read this quickly. Romans chapter 2, verse 25. For circumcision barely profit. Does it? Yes. Yes, it does. If thou art a keeper of the law, if you're walking in obedience to God, then circumcision profits. It's a sign of the covenant relationship. The sign of the oracles that God has given to you, it profits. But, but, if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is profitless, made uncircumcision. Just as that ring on that lady's finger is a prophet if she belongs to her husband, but if she is an adulteress, that golden wedding ring is no better than iron or less, nothing, profit. What counts is not the ring, but the relationship. The ring is only a symbol of the relationship between the husband and wife. When the relationship is gone, the ring will save us. When the relationship is gone, the ring will help us. So with circumcision, so with baptism, so with circumcision, circumcision, was God given. God gave it. It was right. It was a sign of their covenant relationship to God. But where there was no reality, where the heart was not circumcised, where the heart was not circumcised and the sin removed, then the visible, physical circumcision was no value. I go down to Kroger. That's where I go, down to Kroger. <laughs> I go down to Kroger. I don't. I don't do any of the buying in the home. But I, I go down to Kroger's, and my wife said, get, uh, get a can of beans. So I walk around. It usually takes about an hour to find a can of beans in these places. I don't go. I'm going to get a can of beans. And I get a can of beans. And it says, you know, whatever kind of beans they are. And there they are. There it has it, that seal around it. And the seal around it has on there B-E-A-N-S, beans. So I take it home, and I open it up, <laughs> and out come turnips. See, well, that's not bad. I like turnips. But that seal is of no value when the real thing's not inside. The only value of the seal is that the seal truly represents what's inside. So circumcision was of value, physical circumcision, only if the ears are circumcised, and the Bible speaks of circumcised ears. And only if the heart is circumcised, and the heart, the Bible speaks of the circumcised heart. And not only did the New Testament teach this, but also the Old Testament. So Paul says, verse 26, Therefore, if the uncircumcision, the Gentile, trust God and keep the law, shall not his uncircumcision, his gentility, be counted for circumcision? And shall not the Gentile by nature, if it 
fulfill the law, obey God, trust God, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision, even though you are circumcised Jew, dost transgress the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but neither is that circumcision is outward in the flesh, but he is a true Jew. The word Jew means the praised one, and the man who is truly praised of God, a true Jew, is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. May I suggest to you that you want to get the impact of this when you go home tonight, instead of reading the word circumcision there, put in the word church membership, see? And then you'll get the point. When you read it, instead of putting the word circumcised, to get it over here to the 20th century in Memphis, put in the word church membership, or put in the word baptized, and then you'll get it. So try that. We won't have time to do it. Now let's wrap it up and close our study tonight. What Paul is saying is that rights are important, but they have no saving value. Circumcision was a prophet, but it has no saving value. If the reality is there, then it's good. If the reality is not there, then it condemns it. And that's true also with baptism or with church membership. Now I want to close by pointing out four perils, four perils, P-E-R-I-L-S, four perils that the Jew face. We look at this and then we'll be through. The reason I want, and I hope you'll be real quiet while we do this, the reason I want to underscore these four perils is because these are four perils that are not only true of the Jews, they're also true of professing Christians in America today. These are not only perils which they face, they're perils which we face. What's the first one? Well, the first one is the peril of mere possession without appropriation. The peril of mere possession without appropriation. The Jew had the Bible, but he didn't believe it. The Jew had the promise of the Messiah, did he not? Didn't he? To whom was the, to whom was the Messiah promised? To the Inca Indians? No. To your ancestors? No. To whom? First to the Jew. So the Jew had the promise of the Messiah, but when the Messiah came, he didn't receive him. He came unto his own, but his own, Yes, mere possession, mere possession in that sense of the law, mere possession of the Bible won't help unless I respond and appropriate it. The peril of possessing without appropriating. That was the great, great sin of the Jew. The peril of possessing the promises of God and the covenants of God and the Old Testament without appropriating and responding. What do you think is the peril of the Bible Belt, the South? The same peril. There are hundreds, there are thousands of people, and especially down in the South, the Bible Belt, where the Bible is honored and preached more than it is in other parts of the United States. What is the peril? The peril is that I can assume that because I possess the Bible, my home, and I've got it on the shelf, and I go to church, and I hear the preaching of the Word of God, and I join the church, and I enjoy these privileges that the mere possession of them will make me right to God, and it won't. It won't be. Not the possession of them, but the appropriation of them. How did Jesus put it in John chapter 6? Jesus said, if a man wants to have life, he must drink my blood. Not literally. By that he means he must appropriate me personally. He that cometh unto me. Uh, Jesus said, he that uh, must eat this bread and drink this blood. Not literally. That's not a reference to the Lord's Supper. That's a reference to a personal appropriation of Christ myself as my Savior. And that's what will help, not merely possession. 
And you know, there are thousands of people. And there are thousands of people in Memphis tonight. And they go to church. They're dear people. They're good people. And they're kind people. And they're generous people. But they're in danger of this peril. The peril of possessing the Bible, possessing the gospel, and not appropriating Christ. What's the second peril? The peril of self-delusion. The peril of self-delusion. The peril of self, verse 19. Thou art confident. The peril of self-delusion. Jesus speaks about this in Matthew chapter 7. It's so easy to deceive myself. Remember Matthew chapter 7 and Luke chapter 13. All went through the peril of self-delusion. The last person often discovered myself. You know, my preacher may recognize that I've not truly embraced Christ the Savior. My friends might recognize it. I may be the last person to discover that I don't have a saving relationship to Jesus Christ. The peril of self-delusion. The worst of all delusion. Third, the peril of misrepresentation. 